Well, let's go ahead and get started in here for the Sunday school class. If you'd like to hang around, let's, you can go ahead and find a seat and grab a handout. If you'd like to slip out, now's the time to do it. Does everybody have a handout? Who would like one? The others? I'll give you a chunk, John. What time, do what now? Is it 10 o'clock the service? Uh, 11 o'clock is our next service. We've got 8.30 and 11. This is a Sunday school time. around here. Okay, thanks. You're welcome to hang around here, though. Thank you. <laughs> Sam, you need more than one? Uh, one's fine. Okay. Well, I'll give you two. We've got extras up here. There should be some in the back there, too, if needed. Okay, well, we're going to begin this morning a four-week series on the sacraments, just as Steve mentioned. Uh, what we're going to do is this morning we'll deal with uh, basically an, an intro to the sacraments generally. So we'll answer two questions. What are the sacraments and how do they work? Next week we'll talk about baptism generally. Uh, the third week we will talk about infant baptism specifically Fourth week, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. So that's the uh, lay of the land for the next four weeks. Um, as always, I welcome, uh, welcome questions and all that throughout our uh, conversation. Um, yeah, let me say up front, the, the, this is, there's an interesting, um, an interesting aspect of the Reformation. Uh, you might not be familiar with that, but the Protestant Reformation taking place in the 16th century... Um, the Protestant church uh, that was formed, birthed at that point, um, in the midst of their response to medieval Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. And um, we often think of that mainly as issues uh, regarding justification by faith alone, which of course was a very significant issue being discussed then. Uh, And then also maybe the authority of the Word. Um, That was also a topic that was um, a bit... Uh, contentious. And um, what you might not know is that an issue that arose in the context of the Reformation uh, as well was that of the sacraments, how we view them, uh, what they are, and, um, and how they work. And it didn't stop with just a divide between Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics. It actually continued to be an issue amongst the Protestant church. So you have differing views that arose in the context of the Reformation. All that to say, it's, it's unfortunate because what the, one of the, the, the chief aspects of the sacraments is that of uh, showing forth and manifesting the unity of the church that we all have in Christ. And so it becomes this point of division, uh, the, how we view the sacrament of uni- these sacraments of unity uh, would then be an occasion for our division. So, that is an intro to say, I I recognize there will be differing views within this room, for sure, as we deal with this topic. Um, I'm obviously coming from a Presbyterian and Reformed perspective. Um, I will teach from that. Um, And so, 
Uh, I want to welcome questions from other perspectives, though, because I'm sure they're represented here. So I just want to say that up front, because it probably won't be as controversial this week. Um, In the coming weeks, we might come across some points where we differ. And it's important that we would remember uh, that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments that are to manifest. They, They do more than this, but one of the things that each of them does is to manifest the unity that we have in Jesus. And uh, that's important as Christians because that unity um, is way more significant than our differences on how we view particular aspects of our theology. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we'll start with an intro question. Father, we pray that you would give us grace as we look to your word together. Help us to grow in our understanding of how uh, we can receive your son and all that he's done for us. Uh, in and through these very tangible means. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, send your Spirit to be our teacher, that you would enable us not just to understand your Word, but to love your Word and to love one another in the midst of our conversation together. Uh, Bless us, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen. Okay, what are some, as an intro question to get us going, what are some reasons that the sacraments so often get left out of our conversations about the Christian life? Or maybe even say it this way, why do they get left out of conversations about means of growth in the Christian life? I'm assuming that they do, of course. Okay, there's a mystical aspect, maybe even, yeah, that we're not quite sure what these things are, or how they're supposed to work, and uh, that, that mystery or the mystical aspect could make us uncomfortable. Yeah, what else? Yeah, we don't see them as important, and there are multiple reasons for that, but that's probably a pretty basic one, um, that we just don't see them as that important. What else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they could become routine, um, they, they could become rote, we might not be attentive to what's going on, and so yeah, out of a danger or fear of that, we, we, we are afraid of practicing them incorrectly, and so we maybe don't emphasize them at all. Yeah, Tim. Yes, yeah, so in an ongoing way, uh, in our response to Roman Catholicism, there's a, could be a pushback against the sacraments, especially if we view the Roman tradition or even some of these others, uh, more liturgical traditions, as um, having an emphasis on sacraments in a way that makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, Ryan. That's great. Great point. Yeah, that they're tied to institutions, and we have a general skepticism towards institutions. Yeah, um, you don't practice the sacraments on your own. It's not something you get to do um, all by yourself. It's something we do as a church, and it's something that is very, uh, very much a part of our life as the institutional church, and that could make us uncomfortable, certainly. Any other thoughts? Um, if we had a board in this room, which we don't, Um, I would write the word Gnosticism up there. Um, That word is found on your sheet. 
down in the second heading. And um, what Gnosticism is, is really, I mean, it's a catch-all sort of uh, word to use right now, but it comes from this Greek word gnosis that just means knowledge. And this was a particular heresy early on in, in the early church, which basically said um, you needed to attain this special knowledge, which would then deliver one out of the material world and into a purely spiritual realm, which is what we really wanted. Okay? So it's a basic view of the physical world as being, um, at best, unspiritual and unhelpful, and at worst, pure evil that needed to be escaped from. Okay? That's what Gnosticism is. There are all sorts, I mean, that's a very broad category with all sorts of different forms within. But the basic view that has carried on for us is that we can uh, have a tendency uh, to view physical matter as something that is inherently unspiritual. Okay? And so when we start talking about the sacraments, which are obviously very physical, um, we have a hard time thinking about how they could be helpful to us in a spiritual way, right? Um, So here's what I want to say. We need a paradigm shift. I think this is a huge, huge part of this. We need to recognize that physical matter itself is not unspiritual. And I have that S capitalized on purpose. Spiritual as in uh, the Holy Spirit. It's not unspiritual in that way. Here's some examples of how this might play itself out. Um, this is very prominent in American evangelicalism. Um, that we think of the end of God's redemptive purposes as being a disembodied state of heaven, where we're kind of in the, angel- in the angelic kind of on harps in clouds kind of realm. We think about the end of God's purposes as being this disembodied world, rather than a physical new heavens and new earth where we, we will uh, inhabit that with resurrected bodies. So that impacts us. Um, we think that we do, that the problem, uh, that, that sin resides primarily in our physical bodies. And so we think we need to shed these physical bodies as if that were the real problem that we're dealing with in our sin. Um, this shows itself in our inability, or maybe our struggle is a better way to put that, our struggle to view sexuality as something, but, uh, as something other than evil or wrong. Um, we see this in, uh, in a general escapism from culture where we can take uh, John's words in his gospel and in his letters where he talks about the world and we can think of that as the physical world rather than as he really intends it, which is the world in rebellion to its maker. Um, and then another example of this in the scriptures, how we can misunderstand the scriptures. We might look to Paul where he uses the word flesh and talks about being opposed to the spirit and view flesh there as physical matter. That's not what Paul's talking about. When he uses the word flesh, he's talking about this ongoing, remaining, indwelling sin within us. And so these, these are all ways, I think, where we have, uh, we've got a difficult time thinking about Jesus blessing us spiritually through physical objects. Okay? And so just from the start, philosophically, it's hard for us to think about how this right here is going to be a way that Jesus is going to give himself to us. Okay? Uh, so here's a quote from Michael Horton. By the way, I'd recommend this article. It's uh, linked at the end for you. This is a great, great summary of, uh, of the sacraments from a Reformed perspective. Here's what he says is going on. The hidden assumption appears to be that God works immediately and directly, without means, in bringing us to faith and keeping us there. 
Spirit is set against matter, in this case the material elements of human preaching, water, bread, and wine. So th- this is basically what, uh, what we do and how we think about it with, uh, our, I think, our Gnostic tendencies, our anti-physical tendencies. So here's the ultimate antidote for Gnosticism. It's Jesus himself. Think about this for a moment. A correct understanding of the incarnation that we're about to celebrate in the coming weeks dispels this view of Gnosticism, right? God himself takes on flesh. The second person of the Trinity really did take on physical flesh. He really did die. He really did rise from the grave. And he really does now inhabit a physical body. Jesus is embodied now. He is in a physical body now. He did create this physical world good, and he will remake this physical world. That's what the hope of the new heavens and the new earth is. You and I will indwell that, uh, that new creation with risen, glorified, physical bodies. This is the end of the biblical story. So God is intimately concerned with physical matter from start to finish. Uh, so th- th- it's no hindrance to him. There's a great quote from Lewis that I didn't put on here. But it's, in, um, it's when he's talking about the Lord's Supper in Mere Christianity. He says, God loves matter. He created it. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense, right? Um, okay, so um, I've got a quote there from John 1. Again, emphasizing incarnation. Look at the quote here from Leonard Vanderzee. He says it this way, God uses physical things to communicate salvation to humanity. But this is the case only as we recognize Christ himself as the quintessential sacrament. In the human Jesus who completely shares our creaturely existence, God comes to us and unites himself to us. Jesus' death and resurrection seal all God's promises to us. Everything that we experience and know through the sacraments we experience and know in Christ. And then a quote from Calvin. I say that Christ is the matter, or if you prefer, the substance of all the sacraments. For in Him they have all their firmness and they do not promise anything apart from Him. So... Uh, If we step back a second and think about the Bible as a whole, Jesus being uh, embodied, incarnate, um, then it helps us to go, okay, maybe there is a way that we could receive this this Jesus in and through these physical elements, okay? Um, Any questions there before we move into our two primary points? Yeah, Max. Sorry, say again. I... How many blood types? Are you talking about like A negative or something like that? Uh, I do not know the answer to that question. I've never thought of that question, in fact. Did he have a blood type? Yes. Do I know what it was or does anybody know what it was? No. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be a different question. I, that's, I never heard that tied to blood type. Um, 
Generally, we could say that most have understood it to be the fruit of the vine, and that's why both grape juice and wine is used. There's a reason that we serve wine, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and as it being the fruit of the vine, I think that's the main reason that we would have that. Because, um, yeah, we could go a long ways with different kinds of grape juice and different kinds of wine, of course. Yes. That's right. Yeah, personal conscience reason, or for yeah, for for reasons of um, yeah, for various reasons that might not want to. Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, two questions we'll ask and answer. What are the sacraments, and then how do they work? So uh, first, what are the sacraments? Briefly on the term, this comes from this term uh, that's actually a Latin term called sac- it's sacramentum, which is the translation of the Greek word for mystery. That's all that is. And so um, it means sacred thing generally. You see 1 Corinthians 4 listed on your sheet. Uh, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so that, that, all that word means is sacred thing. Uh, comes from that Latin word. So that's where the term comes from. Here's what's important about them. One is that the sacraments were instituted by Jesus himself. Um, there are two sacraments... And uh, you see them here both listed for you. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. He instituted baptism in uh, the Great Commission as he sends out the disciples and calls them to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in the Lord's Supper, in each of the Gospel accounts, and then Paul recounts this as well in 1 Corinthians 11, he uh, institutes the Lord's Supper. There are slight differences in each of these words of institution, but it's uh, obvious what he's getting at in each of them. So Jesus, this is an important part, Jesus instituted these two sacraments. He gave these sacraments to the church. Um, And so these are the reason, that's the reason that we practice these two, is because Jesus has given them to us. Okay, so now some theology of the sacraments, and I'm uh, primarily going from the Westminster Standards here. These are the doctrinal standards of our denomination. Uh, They represent... uh, a pretty standard Reformed thought on the sacraments. And so we'll look at the Shorter Catechism and the Confession of Faith. Um, I would commend these to your study as well. I've got all the, in the further reading section at the end, I have all of the sections that pertain to the sacraments listed there. You can find any of this online, and it could be really helpful to to dig in. Okay, uh, from the Shorter Catechism... Here's how they speak, the divines speak of the sacraments. What are, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption? How does Jesus give us the benefits of his redemption? Here's how they answer that. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption, everything that he's accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments, and prayer. Now, two of those three are probably more common to us in ways in which we might answer that question. The divines say, no, sacraments are part of this as well. All of which are made effectual, they're made effective to the elect for salvation. Okay? So, the next question that we would probably have, they talk about the word and prayer in those, or the word at least in, in between those questions. So, question 91, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation. How do they become ways that Jesus communicates to us the benefits uh, 
of his redemption. Sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them. Okay, so there's nothing from in this bread or in this wine that, that has some sort of virtuous uh, capability to communicate Jesus to us on their own. Okay, that's real bread and that's real wine. That's it. Okay, but so it's not anything in, not from any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them. It doesn't have anything to do with Darwin standing behind the table. It's not his virtue that makes this these uh, effectual or effective to us. Okay. Uh, it's not by that, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of His Spirit in them that by faith receive them. So that's how they come to us. The blessing of Jesus, the working of the Spirit, and that's communicated to those who have faith that receive then these benefits. So what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, that just means these physical objects, sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented. They're put forward for us as these signs. They're sealed to us. That has to do with covenantal language we'll talk about in a moment. And applied to believers. Believers is important there. Talking about it's being communicated to those that have faith. So, something to notice that probably struck you here is that the Shorter Catechism lists sacraments as these effectual means of salvation. That is a strong statement, and it's intentionally so. These are the ways in which, one of the ways in which Jesus communicates His very life to us. It's one of the reasons that we started doing this every week, because this is a way in which we would receive Jesus. It's not anything magical that occurs. It's by the blessing of Jesus along with the work of the Holy Spirit, communicated to faith. And in so doing, we actually receive the risen Jesus, crucified and risen Jesus. Okay, so that's a shorter catechism on it. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a bit more of a substantial explanation, um, but it's saying, it's, it's saying the same thing, just uh, expounding a bit more on it. Uh, so, paragraph 1 of chapter 27. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace... They were directly instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits and to confirm our relationship to Him. They're also intended to make a visible distinction between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to bind Christians to the service of God in Christ according to the Word. Okay, so that's, we'll look at each of those phrases in a moment. Paragraph 2, in every sacrament there's a spiritual relationship. And you could actually uh, uh, capitalize the S there. That might be more helpful. Don't think of spiritual as immaterial. Think of spiritual as Holy Spirit, okay? There is a spiritual, capital S, relationship or sacramental union between the visible sign and the reality signified by it. And so it happens that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other, okay? So there's a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing signified. What that means is... These are not just, and we'll talk about this in a moment, these aren't just uh, signs that are supposed to make you think certain thoughts. They are that, but they are more than that, okay? They become uh, ways in which, by the Holy Spirit, communicated to faith with the blessing of Jesus, we receive that which is signified, namely, in this case, the body and blood of Jesus, okay? And then last paragraph, uh, There's more in this chapter, but we're only looking at verse 3. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. It's not anything magical. 
Neither does the efficacy, does the effectiveness of a sacrament depend on the piety or intention of him who administers it. It's not about the, the minister. But rather on the work of the Spirit and on the words of institution which contains, together with the precept authorizing its use, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Okay? Again, saying the same thing that the Shorter Catechism did with a bit more, a uh, little more meat on it there. Okay, another quote from Horton that gets at this. For the Reformed, the sacraments are objective means of grace, but not of infused grace. It's the promise of the gospel identical to the proclaimed word that is confirmed by the use of the sacraments. Just as the gospel proclaimed retains its nature and efficacy, whether we believe it or not, think about that, you can speak the words of the gospel. Some people might believe it, others won't. It's still effective. It's still an effective proclamation. Okay? Just as the gospel proclaimed retains its nature and efficacy, we do not make the sacraments effective by our faith, preparation, works, or any other activity. And yet we must receive Christ in them if we are to profit from them. Okay? Jesus is set forth objectively in these sacraments. We receive that by faith, but he is set forth whether we receive him by faith or not. Does that make sense? In the same way in which we would proclaim the gospel, it might be believed, it might not. Either way, Jesus is set forth. Okay? Here are five statements that are, that are given here in the sacraments. We'll, in a moment, we'll uh, deal with some questions. I know this is a whole lot of material. And we'll continue to revisit this stuff as we talk specifically about baptism and the supper. Okay, five statements. Sacraments are covenant signs and seals. Hold that one. We're going to talk about it in a second. Sacraments are directly instituted by God. We saw that. Uh, they represent Christ and his benefits. Uh, they, are, they, they show forth Jesus, and they confirm our relationship with him. They distinguish the church from the world. That's why these aren't just broadly uh, given to the world in general. They are given to the church, those who have put their faith in Jesus. And then they engage us in service to Christ. So those are the, the five big statements from the confession. Okay, this part is, is critical for us to understand how sacraments work. Um, the covenantal character of sacraments. Okay, um, Think about God's... Uh, the, the, one of the ways that you can talk about God's dealings with His people for the whole of the Bible is through His covenant. Okay? He makes a promise to be God to his people uh, and to... Uh, he prom promises to be God to his people, okay? And he unites himself to his people in this promise. This covenant is a promise made, okay? Um, so here's what we need to recognize about that. That God, throughout the scriptures, accompanies that covenant promise with a physical covenant sign and seal, Okay? This is the way God operates in His covenantal character with us. Here's some examples of how this, this looks. The first one's a little bit tenuous. Um, it's debatable, I'd say. The, the covenant with Adam. In the garden, there's a physical sign of the tree of life that accompanies this promise that God has made. Okay? Uh, the covenant with Noah. The physical sign is the rainbow. This is, a, a, this is to confirm God's promise. This is to show forth... Um, the validity, uh, the truth, the reason it should be believed of God's promise to Noah. And then Abraham, the physical sign is circumcision. And then with Moses, you get the physical sign of the Sabbath that's to be this reminder 
And then the covenant with David, the physical sign, would be the royal throne. So here's, here's what's sig- significant. All of these are signs of God's oath-bound covenant promise. These are, these, are, uh, these are physical signs that point to the promise that God has made. Okay? That's important for us. So then, what are signs and seals? Why would, they, uh, why would the Westminster divines say that it's a covenant, or that they're signs and seals of the covenant of grace? Here's what they mean. A sign portrays and communicates to faith that which is signified. Okay? So, um, so it's portrayed here that this uh, body and blood of Jesus is portrayed, set forward just in this broken bread, and then some traditions pour out wine for that reason as well. So it's portrayed, but it also communicates to faith the actual body and blood of Jesus for us. Okay? So it's a sign in that way, but it's not an empty sign. It's a sign that communicates that which it puts forward, okay? To faith. And then seals. This is a, this covenantal term where a seal authenticates and confirms that which is promised. You think about the rainbow, for example, with God's promise to Noah. That rainbow is put in the heavens to actually be a reminder to God, uh, is the way uh, Genesis 9 puts it, but... It functions that way for God's people to see this rainbow and go, that is the certainty of God's promise to me, okay? Sacraments function that way as well, where they, uh, they confirm that for us. But what's important is that they are seals of God's promise, not primarily of our faith in that promise, okay? That's an important point. You see this in Genesis 17 and Romans 4 that speak of circumcision, you should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it's a sign of the covenant and not Abraham's faith in this promise. Same thing in Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So in all of this, the, these point to God's promise first and not as a declaration of my faith in that promise. Okay? That's a big statement to make. Um, yes, questions. This is the perfect time for questions. We're done with the what are sacraments. Can you explain what you mean by communicates to faith? Yes, yes. Thanks, Carter. Uh, what do I mean by communicates to faith? Um, I mean that Jesus is objectively set forth in the sacraments. He is there and present, whether we believe it or not. But in order to receive Jesus and his benefits, one must receive that by faith as the alone instrument for it. Okay? So I use that language, that, that language of two faith. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson uses that, and I think it's helpful because what we're not talking about when we say Jesus is spiritually present in the supper, we're not talking about, I mean, Jesus is embodied physically. So he, he is, uh, he, we receive the benefits by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's why we say spiritually present, but it's always received by faith, to faith. So it's communicated to faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not planning to do that in other classes. Uh, briefly, these would be, marriage is not enjoyed by the whole of the church. That's the short answer. It doesn't meet that qualification. Um, it's not something that's given to the church as a whole. Um, it inches up 
quite closely based on Paul's words in Ephesians 5. Part of that, too, is where this is some of the confusion with that is where Paul says this is a mystery. That would be this, trans, this word translated in the Latin as sacramentum, which would then, that's part of the confusion of marriage as a sacrament. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Um, well, baptism corresponds to circumcision as the sacrament of initiation into the people of God. Um, it does more than that, but it at least does that. And so there's something that's, um, as it was um, administered to infants, obviously they're very passive in how they're receiving that sign on the eighth day, you know. Um, and so in the same way then, um, that's why we do what we do in baptism as well. Um, a reason that it would be guarded, or maybe I don't know if this is where you're getting, um, there is a promise that if baptism, we'll talk about this next week, baptism, if this is a sign that points, or a sign and seal of God's promise, His initiation towards us, if it's first about God's promise and not about my own faith, um, then that is, that's going to um, determine the way in which we would administer it as well, or impact at least the way we would ad- administer it. And so um, there, there is a... Um, um, there is a promise, but there is a call to believe for the, for, for the Israelite who's called to be circumcised of heart, there's a call to the infant to believe this promise of the gospel. And so, I don't know that the way we would administer it is always to the parent or the child of at least one believer, which is the same way in which it would have been handled in the Old Testament. And so, it's guarded in that way, maybe. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Okay. Thanks for that, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way, and the way the divines talk about this, which we'll see, is that they say that in baptism that the grace 
uh, of this sacrament is not necessarily tied to the moment of administration. And what they mean by that is that there may be instances where that child is benefiting from the effects of, of Jesus' work on their behalf in that moment. That's possible. Um, there are passages where we'd have to talk about the, uh, the very basics of what faith could be and that kind of question. Um, but it's not tied to that moment in that it continues to be a blessing to that child, and I mean by blessing a way in which Jesus gives himself to uh, that person through the whole of his or her life. And so you've got, like, Wesley saying, um, where his mother would tell Charles Wesley, or John Wesley, look to your baptism. You don't do that because you're baptized. That's a way in which in that moment they're looking back to the faithfulness of God in these promises, okay? And so, um, so there is a time when you might, you continue to receive the benefits of your baptism long after it's been administered to you, and that's received by faith in those moments, and so we can speak of the, uh, that's why the divines speak the way they do about the effectual character, even of baptism, um, because it's not tied just to the moment of administration, but continues to be a blessing to this uh, child for the whole of his or her life. We can talk more, more about it, but um, yeah, Max, we'll do this quickly and we've got to move on. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's a... Well, it functions that way for a child, too, in an ongoing age-appropriate way. And that's, that's, a way, that's the reason that the divines will say that one of the questions in the larger catechism is how can I improve, or how, how, can you, how can I improve on my baptism? Use the language improving on my baptism because of calls like that that would still say, yeah, there's genuine benefit from your baptism that you can and will continue to enjoy as you continue to mature in the faith and grow more and more in your understanding of who Jesus is. Yeah, Sam. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's why some traditions have confirmation as a, a process through which that occurs, where, the, and that, that's another way of saying the same thing, that um, uh, the, the benefit of baptism... Uh, can and is received in the profession of faith in that way, and it can do so in an ongoing way. It's not just a one-time thing, but continues to do that. Okay, let me real quick do um, just mention these things. We've already inched up on a lot of these issues, so I don't think we need to spend too much time on the second question. How do they work? Quickly, how they don't work. One is the automatic, mechanical, kind of magic blessing view that the sacraments work in an automatic way every single time in and of themselves. Okay? 
um, as it like divorced from uh, the whole work of the Holy Spirit and uh, faith, as we've talked about. Okay, and those are the problems that it could limit or confine the work of the Holy Spirit, and then the question of where faith is in that picture. Okay. The Reformed view of the sacraments, and believe the biblical view of the sacraments, is that it's always communicated to faith. That's how we receive the benefits of these. Um, and then a symbolic, here's the other error, the, another misconception. A symbolic memorial or empty sign view. And here's a couple forms that this could take. Sacraments are mere devotional aids to help you think and reflect on Jesus. I have mere there on purpose, okay? The physical signs merely remind us of spiritual things, that these are really just here to stir up devotional thoughts. That's one possible way in which we can misunderstand how they work. They do that, but they do much more than that, okay? Um, And then a second way that this could show itself is that sacraments are merely how we give testimony to our faith. And remember, we've spoken of this in terms of the covenantal character of the sacraments, that they are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They point to God's promise rather than our profession of faith. They do uh, delineate us from the world, as the confession says, but they are not professions of faith in and of themselves. And a problem with that, I mean, that's why you could end up with people, um, let me just go to problems. Let me not go there. I'm not going to go that route right now. Problems with this, question of where the Holy Spirit would work in this. Um, it, there's a danger of it becoming more a human activity than a divine activity. Um, it would fail to see the covenantal character of the sacraments, as we've talked about, the biblical uh, reason that we would understand them to be signs and seals of the covenant promise. Um, okay, so here's, a, uh, here's Horton again. Uh, the Reformers fiercely opposed the opposite tendency to subjectivize the sacraments by making them mere signs or tokens to evoke piety. For this, too, would only lead the struggling believer to look for help within himself. That becomes a problem, right? If this is about my own profession of faith primarily, then I don't know if, my, if that was good enough, so maybe I need to be baptized again. Um, so the question becomes, does God really do something in the sacraments or not? And the Reformed answer is yes. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stop right there, rather than try and... Um, talk about these four points. Um, I will do this as sort of a review next week, and then we'll talk about baptism at that point. We've got a minute for questions. Um, if you take a look at the bottom of your sheet, there's a great, that great article by Horton uh, that deals with all of these topics. He talks about sacraments generally, then baptism, then Lord's Supper. I'll continue to quote from him um, pretty liberally over the next few weeks. So I'd really recommend that article as a great article-length take on it. Okay. Um, yes, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, Steve said, the, uh, just in the same way we talk about the efficacy of the sacrament, not merely being tied to the moment of administration when we talk about baptism, but it also is the case with the Lord's Supper, in, that a, in a glorious way, we receive the ongoing benefits of this meal long after we leave here, um, which is a really, really beautiful, wonderful thing. 
Okay, well, I'm happy to uh, take more questions after. I'm going to pray for us now, and we'll close our time. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you are the creator of all things, that you are the redeemer uh, of your people and of this world, um, and that you've sent Jesus to accomplish this work. And we thank you, Lord, for the ways in which uh, he gives himself to us, particularly in the sacraments. Give us a greater understanding of your word and of how this works, even in the coming weeks as we study it together. And we thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.